Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, coming to you live here on this Monday, April 30th edition of the broadcast on republicbroadcasting.org. So thank you all once again for tuning in for another week of broadcasts here on the program. And tonight we are honored to be joined by a very special guest who I have no doubt the majority of you out there will be familiar with by now. For those who aren't, her name is Sibel Edmonds, and for over a decade she has been involved in a struggle with the FBI, the Department of Justice, the White House, and just about every other level of government, media, and foundation-supported NGO to try to get out the sensational story of the penetration of the FBI's Washington field office by an organization related to some of the very foreign elements being spied on by the FBI itself. Her story has led her on a journey that can only be described as Kafkaesque and led her to be labeled the most classified woman in the history of the United States, with the Bush White House having invoked the authoritarian, draconian, repressive, unconstitutional state secrets privilege, a tool for squelching free speech and First Amendment rights to stop her from getting this remarkable story to the public. And now, after over 10 years of this struggle, she is finally going ahead with a tell-all memoir, for the first time is going to document what has happened to her since she began working in the FBI's foreign language translation department in the wake of 9-11. It is called Classified Woman. It is available now from classifiedwoman.com. Sibel Edmonds, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you here tonight. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, James. Well, it is a remarkable story, and uh, and uh, having been honored with the privilege of having a, an advanced copy of it and having read through this, I can tell you that uh, for all the listeners out there, it's often said, as uh, David Swanson notes in his recent review, that this uh, this or that book is a page-turner. But uh, for anyone who is remotely interested in the story of Sibel Edmonds, this truly is a page-turner and a gripping account. So first off, let me thank you for the uh, for writing this and, and for writing it in such a, an absolutely incredible way. Tell us about the way that this book has been received so far. Well, actually, it was scheduled to come out with a lot of question marks, many, many question marks in front of it next week. And uh, lo and behold, it just popped up on Amazon, and uh, I, I had to rush and go and activate Kindle version of it for ebook and Nooks because, as you know, um, this book, manuscript for this book was submitted to the FBI, the Justice Department, a year ago. Uh, I, I was obligated to do that because when you work for these intelligence agencies and when you have top-secret clearance, uh, you sign this document that says if you ever publish a book uh, or uh, an article about the work you did uh, at these particular agency, in this case the FBI, you have to submit that before you publish it to the FBI's or the DOJ's or the CIA's pre-publication review department. And they have, the government has 30 business days, and this is very, very concrete. You know, it's, it's 30 business days to go through it and see if there is anything that they want to redact. Well, in this case, as you know, the FBI and the Justice Department sat on this for a year saying none of it would be released. And uh, my attorneys, and this is uh, Steve Cohn, we looked at the law and we said, you know, you can't do that. Number one, under the Constitution, under my First Amendment, you can't do that. Number two, even based on your own regulations, you had 30 days to redact this and give it to us so we would revise it if there were any um, uh, classified sensitive uh, material in there, and you didn't do it. And they said, no, we don't care. She cannot publish this book. In fact, she cannot share this with anyone, not even with a publisher. Well, uh, I decided to go with my constitutional rights uh, 
and as an American, or what we used to be, or what we were supposed to be, what we are supposed to be, and I'm publishing this book uh, challenging the government. Absolutely right. Unfortunately for anyone who has read the book or knows your story in general, they won't be surprised to see the FBI and Department of Justice sitting on this and trying to squelch it. We will get into the particulars of that tonight here on the program, so don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com and ClassifiedWoman.com. Broadcast friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're honored to be joined on the line by FBI whistleblower Sabella Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com and now ClassifiedWoman.com, which is the homepage of her forthcoming memoir, Classified Woman, which is now available for pre-order. So I suggest that those out there who haven't yet done so at least check out ClassifiedWoman.com and find out what this book is about. Because once you do so, I think you, if you are like-minded with me, will agree that this is an extremely important event. And it's very, very good that we were able to to reach this point even, given the remarkable repression and uh, kickback that she's received over the years trying to get this story out in various ways. So, Sabelle, uh, trying to uh, draw the general listenership into this story, and we don't know if everyone's on the same page knowing uh, the details of your long ordeal, I suppose one of the important things that, uh, that people have to understand is this invocation of the state secret privilege and how this uh, how this all came about. So um, I, I understand that when the Bush administration applied the state secrets pr- privilege to try to uh, squelch this case and, and get it uh, stricken from the record, a number of various pieces of your own personal history became classified information, hence the title classified woman. Perhaps you can tell us about what types of things are, are actually classified because of this state secret privilege. Sure, it's really interesting because um, they, this is the government, the Justice Department invoked the state secrets privilege about a few months after my attorneys and I filed a suit, lawsuit in, in the district court, the federal court, and this was invoked uh, several months, six months after I had gone to Congress, and Congress had begun investigation including interrogation of uh, witnesses and uh, relevant officials in the FBI. And, uh, and by this time, you know, there were some articles already out there on the piece that they invoked this privilege, and nobody knew what it was about because I was the first recipient of the Bush administration's um, invocation of state secret privilege. In fact, it's very interesting when the press release came out from the Justice Department saying today the Attorney General invokes the state secrets privilege on Sabal Edmonds' case, uh, my attorneys had no idea what state secrets privilege was. They had never heard of it. I went and I Googled it, and I only got six results. I mean, today if you were to go and put state secrets privilege, you will get millions of uh, results. I got six, and out of six, there were three, four of those were repetitive. Uh, so I was the first recipient. Nobody knew what state secrets privilege was. And then there was this shock. Why in the world would the government would invoke such an arcane, really, until that point? It was a really rarely invoked privilege. Well, between Bush and then later Obama, they had invoked the state secrets privilege, which is not a constitutional law. You know, it's, it's, it's based on common law. It had never passed through con- uh, Congress. And it was, as I said, rarely used. Why would they invoke this on Sabal Edmonds' case? 
you know, that would be the logical question to ask. And my attorneys, they were baffled by, by this entire thing. Later, months later, in addition to the state secret privilege, the government uh, retroactively classified anything that Congress had done in my case, any statements they had issued. That included uh, Senator Grassley and Senator Leahy's statement during CBS 60 Minutes, watched by one and a half million people. The Justice Department stepped in and said, all those statements are now considered classified. And then, about two years after that, they invoked the state secrets privilege for the second time in my case. Again, nobody has had it invoked twice on their case. Again, I, that was baffling, too, at the time for people who didn't know what this case was about. And they invoked this for the second time when the 9-11 family members' attorneys, they had this big uh, lawsuit against the Saudi uh, government, they deposed me as a witness, and they needed my testimony. So this was when the Bush administration invoked it for the second time, saying, no, she cannot provide information and testimony. And the judge asked the attorneys for the 9-11 family members to submit the list of questions they were going to ask me to see which one of these questions would be considered sensitive by the government. Well, the government marked questions such as my place of birth, as covered by state secret privilege, top secret classified, the languages I speak, they said that question is absolutely sensitive. They cannot ask me. That answer would be considered classified. My college degrees, my master's degrees, everything about me. They could, and the judge, and this is uh, in the uh, federal, uh, the district court, they actually agreed with the government. And he granted their motion saying everything about Sabal Edmonds, including her birthplace, that includes my passport. My passport has my birthplace. The lang- my resume would be considered classified because it lists my languages and the colleges I had attended. All that information is considered classified. She can never provide testimony including that information. Absolutely remarkable. And for those out there who, who really don't know anything about this case, I guess we could say as, as just background to what we're talking about here, that you did work in the Washington field office of the FBI in the wake of 9-11 in the foreign language translation department and uh, and basically were recruited by some members of a foreign organization who were supposedly the actual targets of some of the FBI's uh, spying efforts. And, uh, and they were trying to attempt to recruit you into a a type of uh, counter-espionage ring, I suppose, within the FBI itself that uh, they had managed to penetrate. And it was your experience of trying to go up the ladder and trying to to tell someone about this remarkable uh, thing that had happened to you, that uh, you started to encounter all of the resistance to anyone giving a black eye to the FBI and its sterling reputation. So it is a remarkable story. And one of the things that really struck me when reading through Classified Woman was that the classification itself is not only a, a, a type of shield that the perpetrators of the, this type of espionage and all of these shenanigans can use to try to deflect the criticism of others, but it's also a weapon that they can use against anyone who tries to blow the whistle on that. Perhaps you can talk a little bit more about how classification is used in, in that double sense. Absolutely, because with, you know, with classification, there's really no oversight. So you have the government agencies, and it has gotten much, much worse. It has been getting worse. It has been getting much more extreme every single year, especially since 9-11, is the government can decide without having to justify it to anyone. For example, in my case with the courts, they said, Judge, you can't know this 
information. And before we even discuss it with you in camera, you need to have top secret clearance. Okay? So they even withhold it from the judges, meaning nobody can bring a case against the government because the government can declare anything they wish classified. In fact, one of the things they presented to the court was this thing called the mosaic theory. And that is, even the reason why it is classified is classified. So that's why we can't tell you. Because you have to look at it like this broken mosaics. And even little bits of information that may seem totally innocent can form this mosaic Then the enemy of the states can use this and we will be all dead, basically, blown up. And without having to actually show any proof for it, the courts, the Congress, every, the media, they all accept it because the government says so. Why is classified? How is it justified? Is it justified? None of those ever are answered with classification. You're looking at currently hundreds of millions of documents are classified, are marked classified. We spend every year billions of dollars just our government agencies supposedly protecting these classified documents and information. Absolutely, and there's an entire uh, structure that's been created and, and, as you know, really fleshed out in the years since 9-11 to, to prop up that edifice of classification and to, to really make it function like the, the Cyclops monster that it is. And, uh, and it is just something that, that is so pervasive that so few people are willing to question it. And one of the things that, that really struck me reading the book was how every single layer and level of people that you turn to at every single point, there was always the, the pushback against actually doing anything to combat against this classification and the, the real Kafkaesque journey that, that you were on. Um, there, there was so so many people who were willing to tell you to to simply give up because there's no use fighting it. Even people who knew that there was something fundamentally wrong with the system, and uh, and in that sense, it was really one of the most uh, depressing things I've ever read because it really does confirm all of ever, everyone's worst fears about what's happening in the inner recesses of this national security state and the uh, the people who are failing to stand up against it. Absolutely, and there were other uh, aspects of this case that also played uh, a role in, in, in this whole uh, climate of, of uh, surrounding this case. For example, one aspect of it was that it was nonpartisan, or it was, in terms of the criminals involved, bipartisan. For example, I, I, there is a scene there in this book talking about me going to Congressman Waxman's office, and they took me inside a secured building called SCIF. And this is where you can talk about classified information. All the staff members have clearance. This is Congressman Waxman, Democrat. And this is in 2005. And they wanted to know about all these issues. And as I started telling them about the names of the officials involved in the State Department and in Congress who are on the payrolls of various criminal entities, these are U.S. congressmen. These are people in the State Department, high-level uh maybe second or third guy from the top uh, in Pentagon who are uh, in various Air Force laboratories uh, involved in producing uh, nuclear or researching nuclear weapons. Uh, as, as, as I started telling them and giving them all the detailed information, specific information, file numbers where they could locate it and ask the FBI to get it, they stopped me. This is uh, the, uh, the legal counsel for, for Congressman Waxman, who had clearance, and he said, before you go any further, Ms. Edmonds, I have a question for you. Are there any Democrats involved? Because at this point, I had gone through some of the Republicans. I said, yes, they're, they're, 
least 30% of these people were Democrats. And he said, I don't want you to tell us anymore. We don't want to hear about it. Two wings, same bird of prey, unfortunately all too true, and as completely fleshed out in this remarkable new book, Classified Woman, once again available from classifiedwoman.com. On that note, we'll take a short break, but we will be right back with our guest, Sibel Edmonds. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight, we're honored to be joined on the line by Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com, which I'm honored enough to be affiliated with, and now of ClassifiedWoman.com, the homepage for her remarkable new memoir, Classified Woman, the result of 10 years of suppression and, uh, and the runaround that she's received from every level of government and the media and the NGO watchdogs that are supposedly there to stick up for whistleblowers like herself and others. And it is a remarkable story. So once again, for those who aren't familiar with this story, or even for those who are, I could not recommend this book highly enough. It truly is a gripping tale. And uh, and it is uh, absolutely an honor to be uh, associated with this in any way, and, and even to be mentioned in the final pages of the book. So so once again, thank you so much for that, Sibel, and for all of the work that you've done bringing this to people's attention. And it really is a remarkable story insofar as uh, one can't even really begin to imagine the different levels and the layers of the runaround that you've received at every single point of this story, right uh, from reporting to your superiors in the FBI all the way up to the media and uh, Congress and all of the different places that have supposedly tried to investigate and and get the word out about this, but really just uh, kept the lid on it. So let's talk a little bit about that journey and the different levels and layers of this story as uh, as the world really continues to to try to keep the the, the wraps on a story like this. Well, uh, some people they think whistleblowers are these people who see some wrongdoing and they just jump out there and go and give it to the media and shout it out and and that's not the case. Usually, the media and being you know going public is the last stage with 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 true whistleblowers at least. And in this case, you know, I had reported it internally within the executive branch, first inside the FBI, my own unit, then I went to the headquarters, to the director, then I went to the level of investigative offices involved with the Justice Department, like the Inspector General's office. When all those channels uh, ended up not really working, and in fact working in the opposite direction of having an investigation, that was when I went to Congress. And then uh, after Congress, you know, it was Congress, and then it was the courts, and then it was the media, public. And, and, and uh, so it, it, it does happen in stages, and that seems to be the norm with, with all the legit whistleblowers. And, and unfortunately, it's the norm, because if I had known what I know today, I would have bypassed all those channels. But, you know, I, I have a master's degree in public policy. I was one of those Americans who believed in all the theoretical uh, uh, things that I was taught in, in, at the university level and then later on at the graduate uh, level at the universities, that this is, this is what, what, what the channels are. There is this thing called the separation of powers, and there, is, there are these uh, uh, committees within the Congress who, who uh, oversee certain executive branches. I believe in all that, that, in fact, if you have an inspector general's office, even though 
the same boss ends up paying this guy and putting him in his position, which is the head of the Justice Department, Ashcroft, which is the same guy who invoked the state secrets privilege and, and engaged in cover-up, those people actually would investigate my case. You know, it was that, that naive outlook that made me follow the rules, the rules that the government issues, and also believing in these, um, uh, in these fantasies of the separation of powers and what Congress does, and Congress is the one uh, entity that, that holds the executive branch accountable. When you get into it, you realize that none of those things are working. In fact, I don't believe they really worked even before 9-11, but it has gotten even worse. And, of course, with the fourth branch, which is the media. So it, it was a learning experience for me. And one of the things that if people were to go to my organization's website, National Security Whistleblowers Coalition, they will see that since 2007, I, I mean, up until 2007, I had organized rallies, um, writing petitions to Congress. I wasted thousands of hours doing those things which are absolutely futile, and that's exactly what the establishment wants you to do. They want you to spend your time and energy to go through the channels that they set up and to go through the futile steps that they put you that you finally end up in Norland. So today my advice to, uh, to be whistleblowers is just bypass those. If you believe that information is important and it's not really justifiably classified, find a way to make it public, which is becoming extremely difficult because one of the first logical questions whistleblowers or to-be whistleblowers ask me would be, can you give me a recommendation? Who is a good reporter I can trust? And I go blank as far as the mainstream media is concerned. Sure, there are a couple, not exactly mainstream, that I have sent people to. If I'm dealing with NSA or to-be whistleblowers or people who want to do it anonymously, there are certain people that maybe I can send them to. But really, it's impossible almost today. I mean, you see what's happening. Um, maybe some documents can be sent to cryptum. Again, I'm not talking about breaking the law and doing something justifiably classified. Expose torture. Expose fraud. Expose criminal activities or operations by the executive branch or Congress. These things have nothing to do with classification. So, no, uh, I learned from the process. I was very naive. And, and it taught me I learned it a hard way, and I try to teach others who haven't gone through the process. I'm trying to save them the time. Unfortunately, the establishment with their NGOs, they have all these whistleblowers, so-called whistleblowers entities, NGOs set up there. They are doing exactly what the government wants them to do, to put these whistleblowers in this rat hole and get them to do this. Yes, unfortunately, right. And, of course, they get the millions and millions and millions of dollars in behind-the-scenes foundation funding for being good lapdogs, as you, as you have pointed out at great length at BoilingFrogsPost.com. On that note, we'll take another short break. We'll be right back with Sabelle Edmonds of ClassifiedWoman.com. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Welcome back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com coming to you this Monday night here live with Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com and ClassifiedWoman.com. 
And I certainly hope once again that people will check that out. And I will put the trailer for the, the book in the show notes for tonight's episode. So if you want to find that, as well as a link to the website, CorbettReport.com slash radio, you can find uh, take a look at what we're talking about tonight and hopefully pre-order your copy so you can make sure that you get it on time. But let's talk a little bit more about the book itself and uh, really what the impetus for writing this book was and how it all started to come together. Sure. Uh, one of the first questions I get from people, at least those I know, is why it took you 10 years to put a book out? Well, um, and my answer is always the same, has been the same thing. The first few years, I'm there, out there fighting my own case, and I have, I'm fighting the state secret privilege in court. I'm being told by Congress that, yes, they are going to have hearings on this case. So how could I write a book because it's in the middle of the case, <laughs> you know? And, and and you'd be surprised how many pseudo-whistleblowers, they have their book signing and everything done before they even supposedly blow the whistle. You know, I mean, you had this Richard Clark, supposedly he blew the whistle, but within two months this, this book came out on his whistleblowing. So it doesn't work that way. Uh, you don't even have a real story until... You, you you go through all the stages, and I said, well, I, I, I'm in the middle of my case. I'm not going to write a book. But then it was during my naive activism period with Congress, you know, trying to press the pressure the media, not only on my case, on this entire government, truth-tellers, whistleblowers issues. And I didn't find it right to have a book going on at the same time, because if you are having a book coming out during this period of time, it, it ends up looking like it's self-promotion. And in many cases, it is. Because, she, oh, she's doing this so that she can sell her book. So I didn't want the book to get in the way. <laughs> so by then, it became 2007. And this was when the Supreme Court, you know, said, well, this is a state secret privilege, and we're not going to hear the case. It's classified, basically cited with, uh, the, government, with the government. I, I, I was exhausted, and I needed a break, and I had other priorities to concentrate on family-wise, so I took off. I was traveling almost for two years. I lived in Vietnam. I lived in other countries, and I became a mother. And then I decided after uh, I came back to the United States in 2009 that uh, it was time for me to write this book, and I did. And I wrote the manuscript, and I, I had to, unfortunately, submit it to the FBI but also, I went about getting it published. So I was told, this is how you publish a book. You have to go and get a high-flying elite agent, you know, the Manhattan uptown kind. And then that agent will go and pitch it to these publishers, say the top five. Basically, the top three, four own the rest. <laughs> they have consolidated to such degrees that there are only like three, four top. But they are dying, and I will get to that. They are a dying breed, and they won't be around for, for, for very long. And uh, so I wanted to investigate the environment. So without actually committing, I started getting into this, um, the whole arena of publication. And um, and soon I realized, wow, it, this is um, it's its own uh, kind of a scandalous uh, 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 sphere, <laughs> the publication, as you know, is the same as the mainstream media. These are the large, big corporations-owned publication houses. They have their own politics going. Uh, they, they, they do have their connections with our intelligence agencies, and these are some of them very intimate relationships. 
So, and then there's also this partisanship, the, the partisan element. In fact, I give you an example. One publisher who was very interested said, well, we, uh, we would like for you to end your memoir with the Bush administration, your case, because Bush administration invoked the state secret privilege and no point of getting into Obama's stuff. I mean, that's how he said it, Obama's stuff. You know, and, and guess what? All the stuff with whistleblowers have gotten much worse during the Obama administration. The secrecy has gotten far worse. Uh, our wars have multiplied big time. And, and so, so that was absolutely ludicrous. And I said, no. If the memoir is going to have the truth, nothing but the whole truth, and if that includes everything on these issues, and including the Congress, whether it was during the Republican majority or the Democratic majority, Bush administration to Obama administration, and the, the, the worsening of the situations. So that was just one example. Uh, and, and there was, before even this woman, she didn't become my agent, of course, after this particular conversation, said, well, you need to know how to play the game. And I said, I'm not going to play a game. I want to publish a book. Why are you talking about a game? You know, what I'm trying to say is you've got to be more diplomatic, you know, both in terms of the party. You don't want to piss off everyone. You don't want to piss off the Democrats and Republicans. You want some of those people to side with you because when the book comes out, that's going to determine how many of those publications the media is going to write reviews, whether it's going to be Washington Times, if you're siding with the Republicans, or is it going to be New York Times? And uh, so you have to be diplomatic. And I said, you know what? Diplomatic and whistleblowers, they're like oxymoron to me. Because if you're a diplomatic person, you wouldn't blow the whistle in the first place. You go and make yourself a really nice, cushy career, and you join the criminal cabal. That's what diplomatic people, as you are talking about, they do. The same thing, this relates to the Waxman's office example that I was giving. If I were diplomatic, I would go and I'd give them all the dirty laundries of the Republicans, whether it's Dennis Hastert or if it's a particular Republican in the State Department left over, and I would just keep the ones on, you know, Democratic side, and they would say, great, maybe they would use it as a partisan weapon, which they do a lot with the pseudo-whistleblowers. It will become an issue of Democrats versus the Republicans. But when you're looking at case that involves several administrations, involves dirty people from both sides, that's totally uh, party blind because they are, they are criminals. Criminals are criminals. Then this is not an area that I was planning to be diplomatic. Again, as I said, it's an oxymoron. Diplomatic whistleblower? Are you kidding me? Sibel, I've only had the honor and the pleasure of working with you on, at BoilingFrogsPost.com for less than a year now, so I don't speak from experience, but I imagine that diplomatic is not an adjective that's been applied when it comes to you, yourself and your personality very often. No, absolutely not. Believe me, I would have gone to the State Department and applied, and this was years ago. In fact, they tried to recruit me. Several agencies tried to recruit me because of my degrees and because of my languages, and I would have by now what they call the GS-13, you know, you go up the hierarchy and, and, and look for some ambassadorship position, or I would be with one of these contractors today, believe me, with these Middle Eastern languages, and if you have the knowledge of the political, internal political uh, uh, information of countries, whether it's Iran or Turkey, with, you know, with, with what's going on today, you can really secure yourself a you know, seven-figure jobs and positions. And that's what I will be doing. And no, that's not me. It has never been me. 
And that is very much to your credit, I would say. So so let's expand on that story. Obviously, you decided not to go the, the mainstream publishing route, the, the safe route, the diplomatic route, and I think that is, again, very much to your credit. But obviously, this means that you have uh, taken on self-publishing, which is becoming more and more of a reality, and I think something that is going to really displace the old corporate dinosaur media that you were talking about before. Let's talk a little bit about that process. Oh, absolutely. It's... Um it, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating process, and it's incredible how things have changed in terms of things we couldn't do, people who wanted to self-publish, maybe even four or five years ago. You can do it today, maybe in varying, uh, you know, uh, uh, scales. But in this case, for example, I wanted to make sure that it was, it was a high-quality work in terms of what the industry expects. So... I needed to have a good editor. I mean, I had 600-page manuscript that needed to be reduced to 350 pages and, and a good cover design. For that, I, I actually searched. And, in fact, people I found, these are all the people who have been laid off, and these are senior, very talented, good people who have been laid off by these uh, big corporations because they are dying. You know, I'm not a big fan of Amazon in terms of corporations, but... I mean, these publication uh, 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 publication houses, they've been screaming about Amazon being such a monopoly and, and they are taking away the business. And, and But guess what? I was able to publish it because there was no way they were going to let someone like me publish a book. They actually asked me, and this is the, the think, think Simon & Schuster, they asked me for FBI guarantee that this book was not going to be pulled back and was not going to be redacted after publication. They wanted me to go and bring them a signed agreement from the FBI. Well, I self-published, and I went through Amazon's program, and it's free, okay? It's up to you. If you want to hire your own editors or the copy editors, that's fine. You can do that or get help. But if you are capable, you can just do the whole thing for free. And, and guess what? Thousands, tens of thousands of people are able to do it. And therefore, these uh, big publishing houses, they truly sound like dying cows in the hailstorm. And they have good reason to, to, to sound like that, I would say, because obviously this is part of that de- democratization of the access to media, which I often talk about on, in my own work, is just one of the most revolutionary and transformative things we could imagine in our society. And uh, to the extent that it brings us stories like yours that uh, that otherwise would be censored in the corporate uh, media control grid, I, I think this is absolutely an exciting time to be to be doing this, but perhaps we should talk a little bit more about the the FBI and the DOJ and what role they have or presume to have in the publication of this book and the illegal confidentiality agreement that they tried to force on you. Well, the, the, the contract basically that, that they had given me, and at the time when I took the position with the FBI in 2001, back when I was really naive, hey, I'm signing an agreement with the super law enforcement of the country, they're not going to be crooks, they're not going to trick me into anything, right? So, But if you read the book, you will see that at that point when I was signing all these documents, there were all these laws and regulations cited, and, 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 and I asked the lady who was supervising the signature process, I said, well, I don't even know what these laws are, they just refer to them by number. So I'm not going to be signing this without knowing which laws or what they are about. She said, lady... If we were to produce all the backups for all these backing for these uh, laws, you would have boxes and boxes to go through. This is the FBI. Just sign it. Well, I did. 
Well, my attorneys were going through this contract, and they saw that the FBI, this is the Justice Department and the FBI, they had inserted an illegal language into this confidentiality pre-publication review requirement. It's supposed to be anything that is classified, you know, secret classified, that is classified as secret, that, that is not supposed to be published, that the government can redact. In that language, they had also, the government entered policy, meaning anything that they perceive as changing or affecting or influencing policy. So they can redact if they say, we believe this has impact on policy, and that language is illegal. Well, I don't know who could enforce it, because today, who has the power over the FBI? So I was asking my attorney, I said, okay, you found that this is unconstitutional and it's illegal. Where are you going to go with it? Are you going to go to Congress? Congress, when was the last time Congress exercised is really its oversight and accountability role? Can you remember a time in the past 10 years ever? None. Courts? Take a look at all the courts ruling. D.C. District, Alexandria Federal Court, in every single one of these cases, the courts is fighting with the government. So you have a government, you have an executive branch that is God. They perceive, and rightfully, they see themselves as God. There is no power over them. You know, the founding fathers supposedly set them up so they were separated and they would be competing with each other and they would be looking at each other over each other's shoulder. That hasn't been the case. So you're looking at this big, massive, corrupt God out there. And, and that also comes with that hubris and arrogance thing that we do whatever we want. In fact, they are testing that every single day and people don't realize. It may be Bradley Manning in prison. You know, tomorrow it will be, and every time they look around to see if there's going to be any kind of a revolution or outburst or people saying enough is enough, and they see nope, the media is not doing that, and the people are just so busy living their busy life of commuting and shopping and paying their mortgage and debt that nobody cares really. Next time they're going to put 10 people in jail. And guess what? They're going to look, nothing is going to happen, then it's going to be hundreds, then it's going to be thousands. And then, unfortunately, you know, Obama just passed, President Obama, this, this genocidal uh, executive order, and he's going to have a genocide czar. It's just that there is nothing global out there to look over and check us for our genocidal activities or our human rights abuses, because as far as the international arena goes, our nation is acting as God, too, because it sees itself as God. And there well, is no a, power over God. Uh, well, what a sad indictment of American society and what it's really stooped to and what it's become. But uh, but I think an absolutely accurate one, and especially for people who read the book and see what you go through. One thing that, that really struck me when I was reading through this was the real impression of exactly what you're saying there, that this is it's like fighting a, a god or fighting some sort of system that just cannot be overcome by any any sort of normal means and it really i mean the the the, the despair of the situation really comes through i think when you read through it and and think about all of the various uh, levels that you had to go through to even try to get this case heard let alone actually resolved or any see any justice Absolutely. but, but Absolutely. the one thing that i i tried when i was reading to to grab onto as as that beacon of hope was the idea that perhaps the pen really is mightier than the sword and that the book itself is a way of trying to combat that system and to try to uh, pierce through the, uh, the 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 hostility that you faced in the in the wake of trying to bring this information to public light so what what is your take on this book itself and and whether it does represent that type of freedom you just explain 
explained my objective, and I'm thankful <laughs> to you for doing that because I want the all the other you know, Americans, ordinary Americans, to read this book and say, this could be me. Because the government usually, or the media, they like to pick the cases of some bearded man that is a possible terrorist, a foreigner. They, they, they really don't think that this can happen to ordinary Americans. Tax-paying, law-abiding, someone with no criminal records, I've been a citizen for 20 years. And if Constitution has been completely suspended and put on hold for U.S. citizens, saying, for example, the government said, First Amendment, you don't have it. We are taking it away with this state secret privilege. The Fifth and the Fourth Amendment, you don't have any right to it either. And, in fact, they've been doing with a lot of cases, and that's what NDAA is about. Basically, they are saying Constitution is irrelevant. We declare this era as the era of national security and terror. Therefore, those rights that you believe you have, they no longer apply. This is what the Americans have to understand. And then to see that... Oh, I will get back to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Hold it right there. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Once again, we're talking to Isabel Edmonds, who has just published or is publishing her memoirs, Classified Woman, available from classifiedwoman.com. So once again, we'll take a short break. We'll be right back here on Corbett Report Radio right after this. We are here on Corbett Report Radio in the final minutes of tonight's broadcast with Sibel Edmonds of ClassifiedWoman.com, which is the homepage for her forthcoming memoir, Classified Woman, which is available for order now. And just before the break, uh, Sibel, we were talking about reasons to maintain hope and to maintain uh, the sense that something can be done in the wake of uh, so many years of experience trying to teach us otherwise. And perhaps you can finish up with what you were saying there. Absolutely, because I don't want people to think that this book ends in some grim notes, because things are really grim. But one of the things that I try to explain, and I have tried in the past 10 years, is that whistleblowing should not be an exception to the rule. Whistleblowers should not be an exception to the rule. If You see, with just my case, the agents I, work, I worked with, I was working with, they all agreed. They were afraid to come forward. You know, they, they were afraid what were going to ha- you know, what was going to happen to their, to their salary or to their retirement. Same thing with other language specialists who just gave it. If there were 10 of us from the unit, and easily it could have been, because the more than 10 people were in, involved in this case that, that wanted to see, you know, some investigations some, or some corrections on these cases, then the government would not have had such an easy time of haunting and haunting one person. And if you look at it, whether it's someone blowing the whistle on torture or, or if it's someone from NSA blowing the whistle on illegal uh, wiretapping of the Americans, they single out one person because there's one person. It's easy to go after one person. And the media portrayed those people, people like me, as some eccentric lunatics who dared challenging the government or some disgruntled employees, and the government gets away with it, and they have been getting away with it. It's a different story when you're looking at people rising up collectively, whether it is within the CIA, 
40, 30, 50 officers walking out saying we are not going to put up with these torture, we're not going to commit these criminal genocidal acts, we're going to go to the media, we're going to tell the Americans, we're going to resign collectively if you don't stop doing this. Do you think they're going to throw all 40, 50 of them in jail? Absolutely not, because the American people won't digest that. That's too much to digest. But little bits and pieces, is, you know, they're much easier to feed the public. And another thing I don't want people to think, I want them to get out of that frame of mind, is this mentality that says, don't rock the boat. You don't want to rock the boat, Sabelle. I hate that expression. I've heard that from my mother. I've heard that from my attorneys. I've been hearing that throughout my case. Just let it go because you don't want to rock the boat. Hey, this is my boat. I'm raising my child in this boat. I'm paying for it. You're paying for it. Our listeners here in the United States who are paying tax, they are paying for this boat. This is our boat, and if it needs to be rocked, we better rock it. And well, if it's sinking it already, absolutely. <laughs> What's the point of right. keeping it keeping it head in the right direction if it's already sinking? But on that note, we are running out of time here. So just in the final minutes here, perhaps you can tell us about the uh, the website, how people can get their hands on a copy of this, and uh, and what's the best way to do that. Sure. They can go to classifiedwoman.com. And uh, there is classified. If you go to the buy section, you see that the book is available via um, Amazon. This is for the print book. It's available as ebook by, uh, through Nuke and through Kindle. And it's also directly available through my own e-store. So they will see all those channels with the links there so they can just click and get the book. And hopefully help us get the word out on this book. Thank you. Well, that, that's really the point, getting the word out and, and spreading awareness of, of these incredibly important issues. And uh, I know it's not something that you like to come back to, but obviously all of what you just said about the type of people who want to keep this information shut and don't want to rock the boat, well, that reflects on you as the type of person who has the incredible fortitude to put up with this for a decade and to survive and thrive in the, in the face of all of that pressure. So, Bill Edmonds, my, my hat's off to you for all of the incredible work you've done over the, the past decade, and I certainly hope that people will pick up the, uh, a copy of this book and read it for themselves. So on that note, Bill Edmonds, thank you for your time tonight. And thank you, James, for this opportunity. All right, that's it for tonight, folks. Talk to you again in 23 hours. <laughs>